Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. Okay, today we're going to look at a really cool uh, chunk of Scripture. And by the way, I've been trying not to get too technical with you all, but I'm going to give you something. Another, I like to give you little nuggets here and there. Uh, there's a technical term for a chunk of scripture called a pericope. It's not periscope, that's what it looks like. Pericope. So if anybody says, we're going to look at this pericope today, I don't know, where, I don't know what the, word, the etymology of the word is actually, but it, it means a, a section of scripture. So our pericope for today is Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. And we're going to talk about the conversion, I'm sorry, the covenant, God's covenant with Abram. Uh, before we get into that, how about a couple of just recap from last week. Last week we talked about Abram as God's chosen vessel. Remember that? God made a covenant with Abram and he promised him, uh, what? Anybody remember? Sorry? Progeny, see offspring. He, pro- he promised him basically money, influence, and kids. Well, uh, power, you know, influence, uh, children and wealth. And of course, it seemed a little bit of a stretch because Abram was 75 years old. Um, and, but there was one condition upon which Abraham's blessing leaned. If you remember, it wasn't that God said, if you do this, I'll do this. But he said, Abram, uh, for the covenant to be fulfilled, you must do something. Anybody remember what it was? You must go to a land that I will show you. And what did, God, what did Abram say? Well, I want, to, I want to brief by Monday. I'll talk to my attorneys and do my due diligence. Check my Expedia, see how the quickest route. God, so God talks to Abram, and Abram went, which is actually really astounding. The reason being, uh, I mentioned this to you last time, that the word for faith and the word for Trust are the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. In fact, the Greek word uh, is the word peste. Well, depending upon, sorry, I kind of confuse Greek and English sometimes. Pesteio. Uh, and uh, that word is the word for trust and the word for faith. So when you see God, leaning on somebody, what he's asking you for, what he's asking Abram and you is, okay, fine, you want to believe that I exist, that's great, you know. But that doesn't actually mean anything. What, what faith in scripture looks like is a belief that, that results in, an, in a verb, in an action. Does that make sense, everyone? So faith, you'll hear me say this ad nauseum because it's so true, faith is not an intellectual assent to a truth claim. Right? In fact, the scripture says even the demons believe and they shudder. Faith is rather trusting in God and doing what he tells you to do. And that indicates that you will, have absolute, you will always have to, uh, when you trust somebody, you have to put your confidence in them without really knowing the outcome, right? Does that make sense? Okay. And you trust somebody because based on past experience, they've earned your trust. 
So, and the sound, it's, you know, faith, people make all these stupid comments about faith, you know what it is? Faith is nothing more than learning that God is reliable and you can count on him, and then when things are not clear, you rely on him and you count on him because of things that have happened to you in the past. Is that clear, everybody? So faith is not an intellectual assent to a truth claim. Faith is going, holy cow, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to do what Scripture tells me to do, what God's Word tells me to do. I'm going to do it even though it's a pretty terrifying thing. Make sense? You'll hear me talk about, uh, not a whole lot, but we'll talk about, in the, uh, coming up in the season, we're going to talk about tithing. I'm not going to talk about it tonight, really, except to say that one thing is true. Tithing is the biblical standard of giving. Tithing is when you give 10% of your income to the work of the church, and you say, Holy cow, that's a lot of money. And it is. However, the Bible says if you tithe, that that blessing will come back to you. It's the only Malachi chapter 3. If you tithe, that God, you can hold him accountable to essentially owe you. It's a crass way of putting it, but you can hold God accountable for that. And people say, oh, come, this is just wishful thinking. This is nonsense. I will say this to you, because I didn't always tithe, but I do now. Every single person that has ever said to me, Rodriguez, I think you're full of baloney, and I'm not so sure about this tithing thing, that scripture is a little bit, that's a lot of money. I, I say, I know. However, just try it. And you will see that God keeps his word. And every single person I've ever, that's ever said, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. Every single person, without exception, who has ever tried it, has come back to me later and said, not only, I mean, we started to tithe and it was scary, and we wound up better off after than before. Every single time. I had lunch with someone today who put his trust in God and said, well, this is a crazy idea, but I'm going to do it. And his business was up 25% that year. So point being, trust is not just pie in the sky. It's actually putting your confidence in God to deliver what he tells you he will. Does that make sense, everyone? So the tithing stuff, everyone goes, oh boy, here it comes. You know, if you don't want to give it, don't give it. But the point is, if you're interested in learning how to really trust God, not just here, but really trusting him, that's one of the ways you learn. So anyhow, that's that. So Abram trusts God by action. And he, at, he, he, he goes to the promised land. And then we notice that God makes covenant with Abram. Does Abram always do the right thing? No. In fact, he does some pretty rotten things. But the interesting thing, though, he, he, you know, for example, he passes off his wife as his sister, which was actually true. She was, Sarah was his half-sister. However, what you see repeatedly in Scripture is that God creates a covenant and, and says, trust me, and they say, I will trust you, and then they fail. But God's side of the covenant never fails. And we're going to see this really clearly tonight. Um, God makes a promise to Abraham to prompt to bless him and make him great. And one thing we also saw last week is an interesting little nugget, which um, is all throughout this promises that God makes to Abram. God says, I will promise to you and your, the English, the Greek, the English word is the word offspring, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, in, in Greek, the word is sperma. In Hebrew, I couldn't tell you what it is. <laughs> but usually we hear Abraham and his offspring, we think of what? Children, people. 
This word is actually singular. And the reason I bring that up, you could say, oh, come on, it's singular, it's a collective noun, or is that a right word? It's uh, singular, but it means a lot of people. You could say that, except, and we're going to look at this in a minute, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, St. Paul, who was a very, very smart uh, Old Testament Hebrew uh, lawyer, says, you know, here's a weird thing. In the promises are made to Abraham and his offspring, and the offspring is not plural, but singular. And Paul says, Paul in Galatians points out that all of these covenants that we're going to see are between God, Abraham, but really between God and this offspring, this, this person, who right now is not obvious, but as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, 16 and following, that that offspring is actually a guy named Jesus. So the point I want you to see here, because it all does hang together, the covenants, covenants, are, um, covenants are agreements, right? I do my piece, you do your piece. And if I'll do my piece and you do your piece, and if I hold my end of the bargain, then we're good. If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, then you owe me. Notice something critical. Otherwise, covenants will make no sense to you that the covenants all throughout are between God and who? The offspring, actually. In other words, God promises, and you're going to see this crystal clear today, God makes promises, but the covenant keeper is not you. The covenant keeper is Jesus who keeps it in your place. Does that make sense, everyone? Are you with me? Sort of? You know, we talk about Jesus' death on the cross, saving you from your sins. All that is saying, it's transactional language. All it is saying is that Jesus keeps the promises in your place. What's that? That's not, yeah. I forgot to remind you guys to turn cell phones off. I've forgotten to do that too. So, uh, I don't worry about it. So, let's look today at, um, our, is that clear about the covenants? I get fired up about this because this is so cool, <laughs> this stuff. Any questions, comments or questions? Are you clear about the, the offspring is this yet unknown person? Paul tells us who it is later. But the covenants are between God and this unknown person. Yet Abram is a recipient of the blessing of it, but his, his, the covenant is not contingent upon Abram or you being perfect. Is that clear? Because remember with the Noah, remember what, the reason God wiped out everybody with Noah is because he was holding them accountable for doing the right thing. And then after he wipes them out, it says that God uh, knew that the hearts of men were sinful from their birth, and God decided not to wipe out the world again, right? In other words, not to exact the punishment for our sins upon us, but to come up with a plan B, if that makes any sense. Are you with me? Okay, it all hangs together if you follow the thread. Okay, let's go ahead and look at this. Um, chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. We're going to break it up into chapter, verses 1 through 6, and then 7 through 21. So let's look at this here. Um, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, there's that word, 
You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Um, let me just, I'm gonna, I was going to talk about it, but we're not going to have enough time. After these things, um, if you look just, just before, right immediately before this text in your Bible, uh, chapter 24, there's an interesting event that occurs. That's Abram is there, and out of nowhere, actually, let's look at it. Genesis chapter 14, if you've got your Bible there comes a guy who you will hear about, and he's important. This, the uh, E100 doesn't talk about him, but it's important. Um, he, this character is important. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, verses uh, 17 uh, through uh, 21. After his, um, this is talking about Abram, and him, Abram getting all this wealth and land, which God had promised. After Abram's return from the defeat of uh, Shedalomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. This is the interesting thing. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And look at this, this is crazy. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, a tithe. Who do you give a tithe to? The Lord. Interestingly, this Melchizedek character, we're just going to talk about him for a second. This Melchizedek is a priest. He is never referenced in any other part of the Bible except for here and in Hebrews chapter 7. Melchizedek is, there is no Levitical or Aaronic priesthood yet. Melchizedek is a guy who just shows up in the Old Testament. He just out of nowhere comes out, and what does he bring? Do you notice? He brings bread and wine. And Abram offers a tithe to him. And then he goes, Melchizedek goes away. And then, and then, and then, and then we see chapter 15, verse 1. After these things. So Abram has just experienced this high priest guy who's a mysterious figure. We don't know who he is until we find out later in Hebrews that it's Jesus, or at least person of the order of Melchizedek. And so after that is where Abram runs, after Melchizedek is where Abram sees this vision of the Lord. Does that make sense, everybody? Have anybody ever heard the word Melchizedek before? Okay, that's, where we, that's the only place you see him in the entire Bible except for in Hebrews. And the writer to the Hebrews makes a connection between the order of Melchizedek, this priest, and the priesthood of Jesus. Melchizedek has no parent and no, no descendant. And the priests of the, of the, the Jewish priests were always uh, hereditary, right? Not this guy, Melchizedek. It just sort of hangs out there. It's a weird little pericope that kind of just plops into the middle of the story. Any comments or questions on Melchizedek? It's a cool word. All right, so. Let's move along into the text. I'm sorry? Yeah, Janet? Um, in, in the Greek, is the offspring uh, 
No, it's all singular. It's a weird thing. Uh, there's two different, okay, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's a good one. There's an interesting thing. In, in Jewish thought, there's an idea of something being a singular, but also having a collective within it. I'll give you an example. Um, there's this one example of offspring there. There's another term, which you'll hear a lot, son of man. You've heard that, right? In the New Testament, we refer, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Jesus is one person, right? In the Old Testament, the son of man is a reference to the nation of Israel. It's not, a, it's not an individual at all, it's a collective. Is that, so the, the point I'm trying to make is in Jewish thought, we don't think this way at all as 21st century Western people, but in the first century and prior to that as a Jew, no problem. You would, an individual could have the collective identity of a group, right? So Jesus can be the, and actually this is where it gets really crazy because Jesus calls himself the son of man and the son of man is always a reference to the nation of Israel, right? Kind of like offspring as a one and a many. Does that make sense, everyone? Is that clear? So in this context, Janet, to, make, to, to sort of finish the circle, this is, it's a singular here. It's clearly referring to many different things because of the stars. What I would say is that it's still referring to one individual, this offspring, that will encompass or identify the whole group. That's why Jesus is the one mediator that identifies all the sins of the world. Does that make sense? Is that, is that clear? Kind of? Yes, no? Sorry? Okay, thank you. Okay, good. I'm sorry? Melchizedek? Yep. Jerusalem. Yes. Right. Say, okay, Janie makes a good point. Melchizedek is referred to as the king of Salem, which later on is Jerusalem, the king of the Jews. It all ties, yeah, it's, it's, what's that? It's weird, but, the, but actually it's not weird. If you, you can, if you look at scripture the way it's meant to be, if you look at scripture as a whole big thing, you can stitch these things together and go, holy cow, that's really cool. These little nuggets that are thrown into the text that aren't clear until later, right? The king of Salem, this Melchizedek, Melchizedek person. In Hebrews it said he's outside of the law, which meant inheriting, you know, Aaron and all of the priests. Right, he is, that's right. That's right, Melchizedek is a, is a, a priest, but not in the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. That's right. That's right. They did not serve. That's right. And for him to bring, for Melchizedek to bring bread and wine is a weird thing because they didn't do that. We do it, but they didn't, except for at the Last Supper. So, do you see the, you see the pattern here? This sort of, yeah, it's, it's cool. You think reading Dan Brown is interesting? This is a heck of a lot more interesting than Dan Brown stuff. It is. It's just it all, all these mysterious kind of things that kind of float around in there. All right, let's look at this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Um, after the situation with Melchizedek, came to him in a vision. And what is, what is the first thing that God says? Fear not. Okay? Uh, a vision is an interesting... Um, Abram is conscious. He sees something. Um, technically, this is referred to as a theophany. Is a technical word for it. Theophany is to experience, to hear, to hear God speaking to you. 
And so the first reaction to anybody when they hear God speaking to them is what? Hey, Jesus, so cool, man. So glad to see you. Bam! Right? The first reaction is always fear. Every time you see, I mean, let's look at Mary, right? When the angel Gabriel shows up to her to tell her that she has been selected to bear the Son of God, the first thing the angel says, he shows up and he says, don't be afraid, right? Don't sweat it, it's me, because they're terrified. Has anybody here ever had a theophany before? If you ever have, it's a terrifying thing. So uh, the point being that uh, Abram is, oh man, look at my screensaver to stop doing this. Abram is terrified, and God says, don't be afraid, Abram, I've got this one. Uh, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Now, here's the problem. What is the problem with Abram and God's promise to give him all these children? What's the problem? He's old, and his wife can't have kids. He's right. What's that? Well, that's what he, she said. So maybe he could, but she clearly can't. And... Uh, and, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Um, in Jewish thought, you had the, what was most important to you was not to collect possessions for yourself. They had a, uh, their identity was more of a corporate identity of a family, right? So we think of ourselves as individuals. They were more worried about having a lineage and a heredity. Make sense? So Abram's got all this stuff because he walked out of Pharaoh the first time and took stuff with him because God gave it to him. Abram has wealth, but he says, God, how are you going to do this? I have no child. Um, do you remember what happened? Come back to Gabriel a minute and Mary. When Gabriel says to Mary, hey, Mary, I got an idea. And she says, oh. <laughs> and he says, you're going to have a child and you're going to name him Jesus. What does Mary say? How's that going to happen? I'm a virgin. What do you mean? So it's exactly, it's exactly almost the exact same type of a theophany. God says, I'm going to give you all these children. And Abram says, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, Eliezer of Damascus is probably a slave or a servant of his, which you could, you could give your non-blood uh, person in your house your possessions, but it's not the same thing. It's not the family line. For them, uh, for a Jew, the family line is really, really important, much more important than it would be to a Western person, even an Irishman. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. It's actually, uh, in the Hebrew, kind of a crass expression, but it means somebody that you will father of your own genetic ability. <laughs> How's that? So, in other words, uh, this, this boy that you are going to have, this heir, who would have to be a male, will be somebody who will come from your own, uh, from an act of sexual union on your part. How's that? Um, and then, and that's actually interesting because later on, when the, you know, so God makes this promise to Abram, and uh, what happens? Did he get the kid right the next day? Anybody know how long it took before Isaac's actually born? 15 years, I think it is, 18 years. So Abram's now 90-something, okay? So in the meantime, because God says, Abram, I'm gonna give you this child, this child will be a product of your own, uh, product of sexual union between you and a female. 
Later on, Sarah, the wife, gets an idea and says, I got an idea. What's that? That's where the trouble begins. And if you know this, we're going to get to this. Um, uh, they go out and get a woman named, well, don't get a woman, it's one of his wife's servants. Her name is Hagar. And Abram uh, has sex with her and they bear a child, which actually is exactly what this says will happen in, in the crass kind of uh, Jewish way. So in, this, in one sense, what, 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 what Abram did wasn't just like saying it was his sister. It wasn't totally out of the uh, realm of possibility with it being true, but it's actually not what God intended. Does that make sense? So um, interesting, you may not know this. Hagar has a son, and his name is Eshmael, and he has a very important role in modern geopolitics. Anybody know why? Because if you know anything about Middle Eastern geopolitics today, the, the Jews and the Muslims not big fans of each other sometimes, right? At least now. Um, that's not always historically been the case, is my understanding, uh, in recent memory. However, the reason being, uh, both Muslims and Jews claim Abram as their progenitor, right? He's the man of the promise. Uh, the Muslims trace their lineage to Abram through Ishmael, and Jews claim their lineage, uh, lineage through Abram to Isaac. And the Quran, interestingly, the Quran, okay, in, in the Old Testament we're going to get to, you've got Abram, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as the, the, the uh, covenantal thread, the lineage. In the Quran, the Quran says, no, 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 the Jews made that up. It's actually Abram, Ishmael, and so forth. So, anyhow, interesting stuff. So, uh, that is part of it. So that, that little dispute continues to haunt us even today. But we're not, we're not going to talk about that. So, um, so, he says to, so God says, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, so shall, your offspring, so shall your offspring be. And look at verse 6. This is, again, Abram doing what he does best. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted, and it, and he counted it to him. God counted it to Abram as righteousness. Does that sound familiar to anybody? How, how come? What it, where, does that, where does that whole... Um, does anybody, if you look at Romans chapter 4, um, Romans chapter 4, we're going to look at... Paul talks about this very thing. Paul says... I think it's Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Is that right? Yeah, Romans chapter 4. Now remember... Paul was a Jewish scholar named Saul before he was converted, and he goes back to two different things in this text that are, is what made him a Christian. Look at, um, let's look at, this is a little bit, a little bit cumbersome in English, but I'm going to give it to you quickly and I'll explain it and then we'll move on. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. This is Paul talking about justification by faith or works. Do you know what that means? Are you, made, are you made right with God by what you do or by faith? Right, and that's what Paul's driving at. Paul was a Jew who tried to do it by works 
unsuccessfully. And this is what he realizes when he goes back and studies the scripture. This is Paul writing. What then shall we say? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, Abraham, or our forefather according to the flesh? Right? He's the genetic progenitor of the Jews. For if Abraham was justified by works, by what he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what? You could say, or you could say, but that word "for" there is a connective. For or but what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but at his due. And so the point, you can go on and it gets a little, it's a little bit to unpack, but the point I want you to see, what Paul draws on later, and also in Galatians, is this very thing. That when God, when God says to Abram, Abram, I'm gonna ha- you're going to have a child, and you're going to have all these kids, and in verse 6, Abram believed him, Paul says it is that faith, is the faith, not the action, but the faith that made Abraham righteous. This is actually the project, this is actually the genesis of the whole Protestant Reformation, right there. Any questions on that? So the faith works thing, uh, <laughs> to summarize, what, what, what the, the Bible says is that you have faith, and your faith should manifest itself in a changed life, right? But it's not what makes you good before God, because none of us is good enough, right? What, is, what happens here is that Abram believes in the Lord, it was counted to him as righteousness, and then Abraham does the works of actually going out and doing what he's called to do. Does that make sense, everyone? So you see justification by, justification by faith, even in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, at least according to St. Paul. Any questions or comments? Okay, so Abram says basically, okay, Lord, you're going to give me all these kids. Yeah, right. Uh, what is that supposed to look like? And then... I, but he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And then look at what God does. If I can get this to move. Um, and God said to him, I love this. God, look at what God says. He defines himself in, in, in verb terms. And, he, and God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Why does he say that? Abram is saying, God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to pull this off? And God doesn't say, oh, come on, Abram. Have faith, young man. He says, well, he says, Abram, remember who I am. I'm the God that brought you, out of Earl the Cal- brought you up from Earl of the Chaldeans. I am the one who has proved myself to be trustworthy so far. Right? I've done what I told you I was going to do. So why don't you trust me on this one because I've delivered in the past. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that essentially is what God's saying. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to me, and then we're going to get to that that covenant in a second. The point I want you to see in that, friends, is that the whole idea of trust is that God reminds Abram of the things he had done in Abram's past in order to get him ready and uh, trusting him enough to move forward in the future. Does that make sense, everyone? Let's stop there for a second. Because it's the same now as it, is, as it was then. Um, how many of you, if you are in the middle, here's some good pastoral advice, good pastoral counsel. When you are in the middle of something which you're struggling with, which if you're not now, you will soon, 
and if you're not now, somebody you know is, struggling with some confusion or doubt or uncertainty or worry or health issues or money issues or relationship issues, fill in the blank, man. Whenever you're worried about that stuff, let me challenge you to do exactly what God just did to Abram. Think back to a problem you had, oh, I don't know, three, four, five years ago, right? That at that point your life was completely insurmountable. And remember, and look and see how God brought you through that. And, and use that as a way to be reminded that you can trust him to do what he says he'll do. Does that make sense? God says, God doesn't say to Abram, oh, come on, Abram, I'm the big pie in the sky God. God says, Abram, I'm the one who did this stuff to you in the past. Remember? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, don't worry about it. I got this one. So as a, as a, this is very good pastoral text, is before we get into the covenant, which is really cool in a minute, that when, when you're worried about something, you're struggling, you're wrestling, you're not sure, or if somebody you know is, Here's a word of advice and pastoral counsel to you. Think back to a place in your own life when you were struggling and you, was, you thought to yourself, there's no way I'm going to get through this. Well, here you are. <laughs> right? And you're probably got here and the situation probably resolved itself in a much different way than you thought it would. Right? That's my experience anyway. Take that as an encouragement to trust God for the future. And also, I'll submit to you, take that be willing to Use that, your story, your experience with God, and how you've learned to trust him based upon what he's done for you, use that to provide pastoral help to others. For example, when your, man, when your friend Bob says to you, man, kids are a mess, you know, whatever the problem might be, you know, Bob, I know you're worried, I know this is concerning for you, I know this is a challenge. Way back when, when I was, you know, three years ago, I had a situation like this, and I just prayed, and the Lord delivered me. In other words, in other words let, the, let your experience not only build up your own trust in God, but let your experience with God be an encouragement to others. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Any comments or questions on that? That's how faith works, man. It's based upon experiences with God and how he does what he says he'll do. Anybody? You guys seem sleepy today, no? Okay. All right. Now this is the cool stuff. Um... Uh, and he said, I am the Lord who brought you up out of, uh, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abraham is, Abram is obviously confused and unsure, just like you would be and like I would be. And he said to him, bring me a heifer. <laughs> Next time somebody says to you, how am I going to know about this? Say, bring me a heifer. <laughs> Abram asks God a question. Lord, how are you going to do this? And God responds, ready for this, with a covenant. And this is, this, is, this is a whopper. It's not obvious, but it will be in a moment, what's happening. God, Abram asks God for a sign, an assurance, and God gives him a covenant. Bring me a heifer. <laughs> I'm going to use that sometime. What should I do? Bring me a heifer. That just sounds good. What shall I, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Uh, God said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. What kind of an answer is that to the question? <laughs> how will I know to possess it? And God says, Abram, just bring me this stuff and watch this. Right? So, so Abram brings 
all these animals. He brought him all these, right? Abram brought God all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. But he got, did not cut the birds in half. I guess they're too small. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Anybody here wondering what in the world is going on? Okay, let me, let me explain to you what's going on here. If you are a, uh, you're going to make a political treaty with somebody, right? Say you're negotiating, I don't know, an arms deal or uranium for Iran. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Say you're negotiating a treaty, okay, with another, which treaty is another word for covenant or promise. It's all the same thing. A treaty, what does a treaty look like? Does a treaty have has conditions on it, right? Okay, so you will not build more than, we will agree that I have going to, I'm going to limit my nuclear arsenal to 5,000 warheads, and you, Soviet Union, will agree in a treaty to, to reduce your, your arsenal to 5,000 warheads, right? We agree on the terms, that is what? It's a treaty, right? A covenant, it's the same word. And the treaty has criteria in it, right? 5,000 warheads, whatever, whatever, whatever. All the terms are laid out. Now, a treaty also has not just the terms of the treaty, but also what else? What's that? A penalty. So if you don't follow the treaty, what's the consequence? Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. Now, with that in mind, let's look at this again. He brings him a heifer, a goat, a ram, a couple birds, pigeons, Abram brings them out and he cuts them in half. Um, he takes them like, okay, so if you're, I should have brought up one of my kids' stuffed animals with me. And cut it in half, they'd have loved it. So say this is your cow, right? And this is the head and this is the tail. What Abram's done, or a goat or whatever, he's taken them, he's cut them bilater bilaterally, is that right? I wish Jim Lark was here, he'd know the word for it. So basically he cuts it this way and lays the two sides out, okay? And then, um, and you can laugh at my drawing because it's gonna be, it'll be ridiculous, but here's the legs, here's the head, half of it, here's the other half, this, oh. What's that? Picasso, right? I am not, I am not an artist by any stretch. So here's the legs. Does that make sense? Does that look? Is it backwards? Too many legs. Oh yeah. No, no, no. The legs are cut in half. The legs are cut in half too. Right? Come on. Come on. Hey, in my in my story, the legs are cut in half too. You don't like it. You don't like it. Teach your own class. Yeah, I, I, no one knows why. That's a good question. Ann said, why didn't he cut the birds in half? Don't know, other than maybe just too small. I don't know. We don't know. One second. One second, one at a time. Uh, who had a comment? Yes, this is called a Hittite vassal treaty. <laughs> vassal treaty. Okay, it's not in the text, but... It was a first century, it was a custom, it's called the Hittite Vassal Treaty, and it works like this. You have two kings that are going to make a treaty, right? King one, king two. And what you do is you take animals and you cut them in half bilaterally, whatever it is. You lay them out and you cut the legs too. 
I guess. <laughs> you lay them out side by side, and then King 1 stands here, and King 2 stands here. And they say, here are the terms of the treaty, right? And then, and then what they do is they walk through, they walk between the pieces like this, each one. King 1 does, and then, sorry, and then King 2 walks through the here, right? And they meet on that side, and the treaty is signed. Here's what's going on. When they walk through the two halves of the animal, what they're saying is this. Listen closely. They are saying, if I do not keep my half of the bargain, my term of the treaty, you can do this to me. Okay? Listen closely. What is happening is that both kings walk through. The treaty is made, the covenant's made, both kings walk through and decide they agree, if I, do not, if I do not uphold my end of the bargain, you can kill me. Or another way to say it, listen closely, if you've lost, listen closely, this is crucially important. I will die to keep my side of the covenant. All right, now watch, let's go. So, uh, this is where, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. That's the same word used that God used when he put Abr Abr Adam to sleep, to make Eve. Same word. So um, Abram is in a catatonic, non-conscious state. But he sees, um, he sees this occur. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Sounds kind of like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Then the Lord said to Abram, ready for this? Remember the question was, God, how am I going to know you're going to give me children? God's answering the question, but in a way Abram doesn't expect. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that there is none that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's the Egyptians. You know that story, right? So God says, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's the Egyptian captivity. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Just like happened with Egypt the first time. Remember that when they left just last week? So God says, this Egyptian thing's going to happen, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. Abram does not make it into the promised land. And, you shall, and, then, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What that says is, God is saying, you're going to go to Egypt, you're going to be slaves there for 400 years. Abram, you're not going to make it into the promised land. You're going to be dead way long before that. And I, and then I, they're going to, the Israelites will settle where the Amorites live, but not until their, their evil is complete. What does that mean? What God is saying is, to paraphrase, I'm going to wipe out the Amorites, and I'm going to use you guys to do it, but I'm going to be patient with them, and I'm going to give them a lot of rope because they don't know what they're doing, hoping that they will come to learn to be saved. I'm going to be patient with the Amorites. And if you know your scripture, um, uh, where is it on here? I had it in my notes. Um, in Rome, oh boy, where is it here? Uh, First Peter, chapter, chapter three, verse nine. 
Um, anybody here ever wonder why God doesn't just come back now? Ever wonder that? I have. I always tell you that when Jesus returns, the dead shall be resurrected, evil shall be judged, heaven and hell, the whole thing. And you say, to, and we always pray, Lord, come quickly, right? You ever wonder why he doesn't come yet? For the same reason. Uh-oh, what happened here? Because he wants more people to be saved. In the scriptures it says he's coming soon. He is. He all the time. Right, and he's come, and he will be in your life. He'll, he will. Jesus Christ will come back. Will return in your lifetime for sure, as far as you're concerned, <laughs> right? Second Peter chapter three verse nine says that Paul, my, yours and mine and everybody in this room. So it doesn't matter. You're, I'll put it, Charlotte. I put it this way: when in your lifetime, when you're when you die and I die, you will meet the Lord. It's the same thing. Right? In other words, it, Jesus might not come back for 10,000 more years, but he's going to come back for you when you die. In other words, that's going to be your day of... It's not, that's not meant to be a scary thing. It's meant to be a joyful thing, actually. So I can remember what his password was here. We're going to skip the second. Second Peter 3.9 talks about Jesus, why Jesus delays in coming back. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But we're not going to look at that because we're running short on time. I want to show this to you. So back to the Mo, Abram story. Uh, God promises Abram, he tells him there's going to be, they're going to be enslaved, there's going to be, uh, they will, he will conquer the, um, the Amorites with using the Jewish nation, but not until their evil is complete. And then, look at what happens next. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, remember that word behold always means this is big, behold a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the halves. Let's come back to this again. This is our Hittite vessel, vassal treaty, right? It says, Behold, a uh, smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, singular, I give this land from the river of Egypt, the great river, to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and all that. Basically, modern era, Israel, eventually. I want you to notice something crucially important. Uh, when the sun had gone down, it said, it was dark, and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, and so did Abram. Doesn't say that, does it? Wait a minute. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Those are symbols of God. He makes his end of the bargain. I don't see Abrams in there. Do you guys see it? Who, who says, I will keep my end of the bargain? I will keep my Who says, I am prepared to die to keep my covenant? Only God says it. Abram doesn't, don't, I mean, you think, I'm, drawing, I'm pulling at straws. This is huge, this is re, ridiculously novel in the context of a Hittite vassal treaty. Both parties walk through the pieces. Adam never goes through it. God goes through. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, period. Doesn't say Abram made a covenant with God. It says God made a covenant with Abram, and it says, Abram, I am prepared to die to keep my end of the bargain. And yet, Abram is not required to do the same thing. Are you with me? 
But I want you to see, we already, we already see what's cooking a little bit, don't we? That if, God's, if, if God is keeping his covenant, which is a covenant of prosperity and selection and his presence with Abram and his seed, and God's covenant is with Abram and this offspring, what you see is God saying, I'm going to keep this covenant to the death and doesn't require Abram to make the same decision. You know why? Because Abram doesn't do it. <laughs> what we see, fast forward to Jesus, is we see on the cross God keeping the covenant unto death. Right? So you see God, you, in other words, we talk about this covenant being God making a covenant with Abram as the recipient of the benefit of the covenant, but the covenant's really between God and this offspring, right, who is willing, and God is willing to keep the terms of the covenant by dying for it if necessary. And we see on the cross, with the death of Jesus Christ in Abram's and your place, we see God keeping the covenant to death. Cool stuff. Now, to a first century, to the, uh, Abram doesn't have any idea of this stuff yet. But Paul picks up on it, of course, and in Galatians and in Romans and so forth. And we see that God is a God of covenants. And the important thing about the covenants of the Old Testament and the New is that they are not, they are not dependent upon your being a holy person. It's not contingent upon your living the right way. It is contingent upon the offspring keeping the covenant in your place and dying to keep that covenant for you. Is that clear? Is it Let's, we've got three minutes here. Can we have any questions or comments on it? What did you say about the offspring? God makes his covenant, you saw it, make my covenant with Abram and your offspring, which is a singular. So what you see is God making a covenant Right with uh, with Abram as a, as a recipient of it, because Abram never Abram never walks through the pieces, if you notice, and with his offspring, which is a singular word, and we don't know who that is yet, but Paul says later on in Romans that it's Jesus Christ, and so what God is doing is making a, God is making a covenant. Remember, to be right with God, you've got to keep all the rules. The problem is we can't do it. <laughs> I can't anyway. You can't either. So what God is saying is, I'm making this covenant with an offspring, right? And that offspring is, and again, the offspring is God's son. And the offspring is prepared to die to keep the covenant, which he does. The new covenant, which is not based upon law, but upon trust and faith in the one who keeps the covenant in your place. Does that make sense, everyone? It all hangs together. But that's why we talk about the new covenant the new covenant uh, in Christ's blood, the new covenant of the cross, the, the covenant of the New Testament, the new covenant is that Jesus Christ dies on the cross and keeps the covenant with uh, God's covenant in your place and in mine. And you can see it all the way back, you can see it all the way back, a foreshadowing of it, all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. Clears a bell, if you understand what a Hittite vessel treaty is. You did. Thank you. Me too. 
Not just you. We all did. That's right. The, 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 original, the original sin, introduction of sin, the, the first break, we, we talked about this the first week, was Adam and Eve, right? Or second week. When Adam and Eve decided, hey God, thanks but no thanks, we're going to go our own way. And ever since then, God has been trying, God, God has tried, the, 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 the attempt has been for us to be made right with God, but we can't do it on our own because of the introduction of sin after the fall. Is this confusing to everybody? Is this new? I hope, it's, it's just basic Christianity 101, but for some reason, this stuff isn't preached anymore. I mean, it's a whole other thread. Who else has a question? Bill Shankland. To me, it's analogous to the parent and child. Because a, a parent is accepting responsibility to the child, like God is expecting um, Abram or Jacob or whoever he's talking to. That's right. And how hard it is for me, a father, to carry out that role in my relationship with my child. Right. When the child is going off being disobedient or into a problem, but God never seems, he never seems, and I can't do that. So I recognize right from the beginning God is. that I am so important. God, uh, uh, Bill is saying that he recognizes that he is imperfect and has a hard time disciplining his own children, right? Is that fair? And I want you to notice something here, too. This, um, some, an unnamed bishop whom I know of, once described this relationship as God making the covenant with his offspring and the offspring dying to keep the covenant as child abuse. Say, I know, hang with me a second. Realize one thing, realize one thing. This is Jesus. <laughs> I mean, this is the Trinity here and here. What, what you see is God, the only way, the, again, the only way that God can reconcile you and me to him, make us perfect, and allow us to have free will at the same time and be sinners, to your point, Bill, right? The only way our Father in heaven can possibly save us and not require us to pay back what we've done wrong, which we can't do, is for God to pay the debt on his own which is what that, exactly what that is. Fascinating stuff. It all hangs together. You'll hear me say that over and over again. Anybody have any comments or questions? Is this new for you? The Hittite Vassal Treaty? Come on, who didn't know about a Hittite Vassal Treaty before? <laughs> so, um, Paul draws on this, this chapter extensively later on in the New Testament, but you can see already a foreshadowing and the need for the cross based upon the fall, humans broken in sinfulness, and God's love for us and desire to redeem us. So, any observations? We've got one minute to go. Any, anybody have anything? Funny anecdotes, stories about heifers? Uh, we will be, uh, this is gonna be, um, I know you're all very sad, sad about this, but this is gonna be our last E100 for the season, for the year, uh, because Thanksgiving is next, next week and then the season between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Advent is pretty busy. So we're gonna pick this up again in the new year um, with the next story, which is, uh, which is the sacrificing of Isaac, which is an, another good one. Um, which again, if you know how to read, it's in Genesis chapter 21, verses one through 22, 19, where we see Abram, Abram being willing to sacrifice his son and God provides an alternative, a sacrificial lamb, to take the place 
of his son. You hear that? Does that sound familiar to anybody here? I don't know. It's all there. Anyway, thank you all. We're going to pray before you go, but thank you all for coming to this. I hope you've enjoyed it. <coughs> and uh, why don't we close in prayer? The Lord be with you. Lord God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your covenant which you've made uh, with your son, Jesus, and given us the benefit of the privilege of being called your children through faith in him. We thank you, Lord, that this covenant is unbreakable, unbreachable, that it is kept not by our works, but by our Lord's works who died in our place. Uh, Lord, give us the spirit of joy and thanksgiving and just wonder at who you are and uh, the scriptures that are revealed to you to us and that's such a magnificent, wonderful way. Uh, send us out to our families and our friends now, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.